Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is a podcast about the criminal legal system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. The death of Tyree Nichols has restarted a familiar conversation across the country about policing and how to hold law enforcement officers accountable when they violate the rights of those they're sworn to protect, or worse, when they break the law. Joanna Schwartz is a professor of law at UCLA School of Law. She teaches civil procedure and a variety of courses on police accountability and public interest lawyering. She's one of the country's leading experts on police misconduct litigation, has a clear understanding of the dynamics of modern civil litigation. She's a graduate of Brown University and Yale Law School. Her new book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, just came out, and it couldn't be more timely for the discussion we're having about holding police accountable. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Professor Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us on The Permanent Record. You have a book coming out very soon called Shielded, and you have done a lot of studying and reading and and writing about uh, police accountability and police misconduct in America. Um, Why did you decide to write this book? When did you decide to write this book? And and just give us the the general idea of what, what you hoped to accomplish with the book. Sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me uh, on your show. Um, I uh, began to write Shielded uh, in the summer and fall of 2020. And I've spent my legal career um, as an advocate and then as an academic uh, focused on civil rights litigation and had done a lot of research, uh, empirical research, studying the barriers to relief in civil rights cases long before May 2020 when George Floyd was murdered. But following uh, the uprisings and the massive uh, public, national, international attention to police accountability and legal doctrines like qualified immunity, which hadn't been a phrase that was on anyone's mind until May 2020, I started fielding calls from legislators and reporters trying to understand what qualified immunity was, um, who paid when uh, settlements and judgments were awarded against police officers, and just generally how the system worked. And these were a lot of things that I had spent my time as an academic studying. So I realized I wanted to write Shielded so that I could in a way that would be accessible to people who are not lawyers and who are not steeped in all of this, uh, could understand each of these barriers to relief and also understand the ways in which they fit together. Because often when there are news stories or even legislative efforts, they take aim at one aspect of the system. But I think it's really important to see the system as a whole, the very many shields to justice in these cases and the ways in which they interlock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this book um, reads like it was written since the Tyree Nichols video was released. Uh, as we're recording this, that was about two weeks ago. And um, it just couldn't be more relevant because of the way you do march through all the different parts of accountability and what happens when we see videos like this, which we're all too, unfortunately, used to seeing as Americans. Um, 
but you say uh, in, in the early part of the book that these videos only scratch the surface of the injustices that occur. That's sort of how you set this up. And, and then you walk us through all the different places. Um, and is there a reason that you chose the order that you did? Help help a person who who doesn't, as you said, this is the reason you wrote the book, a person who doesn't understand qualified immunity, a person who doesn't understand all the many different things that go into this. Um, why is it organized the way it is? Where do you start? Where does it go? Give us the big picture. <laughs> so uh, I do think that these, these high profile events that have videos and capture public attention only scratch the surface. There are, there are so many other people whose lives have been upended, uh, if not lost, by police violence. And in Memphis, you see the Scorpion unit uh, was involved in um, assaulting all sorts of other people whose claims um, never were investigated, it appears, by internal affairs, never made public uh, attention. And so part of my goal is to tell the stories of these barriers through the through the lived experience of people whose stories haven't captured public attention. And the way in which I tell the story and describe the barriers is, is kind of chronological in terms of the process of bringing a civil case. So the first thing you have to do is find a lawyer. Uh, you know, if you're charged in a criminal case and you don't have the money to um, uh, pay for your own lawyer, one will be appointed for you doesn't work that way when your constitutional rights have been violated and you're seeking money or court-ordered reforms. You have to find a lawyer willing to uh, represent you. And, and that actually can be very hard to do. Uh, outside of big cities, often big cities in the North, uh, where there are you know, civil rights lawyers that, that are bringing these cases, civil rights lawyers can be few and far between outside those major cities. And I try to explain why. Um, that's the case. And then once you get a lawyer, then you have to file the first papers in the court, which are called a complaint. And the Supreme Court has made that challenging too, by saying that people, before they start a lawsuit, before they can demand records from the other side, they have to have enough information in that first complaint to establish what the Supreme Court has called a plausible entitlement to relief. But you don't always know what happened. And if you don't know what happened in a case, if your loved one was killed and you don't know the circumstances of their death, you can be kicked out of court before you even get to the moment where you could demand documents and evidence that would tell you the truth of what happened. And it goes on, you know, the challenges for establishing a constitutional violation, then comes qualified immunity. I talk about the challenges of holding local governments responsible. I talk about the challenges, even after you get through all of those steps, you have to convince a judge or a jury that you're entitled to relief. And judges and juries can be really unsympathetic to these cases. And even if you get past all those levels, then the question is, what impact do these successful cases have? And what I've found is that local governments and police officers are insulated in various ways from the consequences of their actions, even when the cases are successful in court. Yeah. The Back up just a, just a teeny bit and, you know, I asked you about or you started talking about lawsuits. And that's essentially what the book is about, is how these lawsuits, the, the many different shields to effective litigation against uh, against law enforcement. Uh, uh, but people might think, well, anyone who brings a lawsuit, they're just looking to get rich. Right. 
Uh, and I think you do a good job of explaining why litigation, particularly federal litigation, which is predominantly where these types of cases are brought, well, 1983 cases, the only place these cases are brought, why litigation? Why is this not just people looking for a payday and why shouldn't we protect against that? Sure. I think it's a really important question. And I and I think that the answer uh, to that question requires you to step back and, and think about what it is that people want when their rights have been violated, what you would want if your rights had been violated. People often talk about the desire for some justice and some accountability to prevent this from happening again. And the question is, how do you get that? Well, in our current system, there's really three different paths. None of them are easy to travel. One is a criminal prosecution. And Officers can be criminally prosecuted. The officers who killed Tyree Nichols are being prosecuted. But in the run-of-the-mill case, that very rarely happens. In, in less than 2% of cases involving uh, uh, police killings, officers are criminally prosecuted. And they're, they're convicted in something like a third of those cases. Part of this is because prosecutors are reluctant to bring charges against officers. Jur juries are reluctant to convict officers. So criminal prosecutions, even if you think that officers should be put in jail, that that would be the most just result, it's not a very common one. The second path is internal police department discipline, termination, um, uh, and um, you know, uh, other kinds of consequences through the police department. The problem with this avenue is that police departments have proven time and time again to be dreadful at investigating their own. And when the Department of Justice has, investi has, has investigated police departments' investigations, they found them always to be lacking. There's inadequate um, uh, efforts to really get to the bottom of the story. And even when police departments do investigate their own and do have a finding of wrongdoing, there's often uh, complex uh, arbitration procedures or appeals procedures that unions have put in place through their law enforcement um, collective bargaining agreements that make it very hard to fire officers even when they've been found to have engaged in wrongdoing. So neither of those paths work very well. The, the one that is left is civil litigation, seeking money or court-ordered reforms. And there's ways in which litigation through the civil process is set up in ways that, that can more effectively, at least in theory, advance justice. The person whose rights have been violated doesn't have to wait for a prosecutor or an internal affairs investigator to decide whether to bring charges. And the person who's brought this case can unearth critically important evidence that the prosecutor and the internal affairs uh, investigator may not uncover. They also can get these kinds of tangible benefits money to compensate them for their losses and possibly a court-ordered reform. And yes, there is money changing hands in these cases, but think of it this way. In these instances where someone has been hurt or killed by police, those damages, those injuries have to be borne by somebody. It's either going to be the person whose rights were violated who the, the family member of the person who was killed, or it's the collective community that gave those officers their badges and guns and authority to 
violate this person's rights. So it is, it is, a, it, there is money changing hands in this system, but I think it's important to recognize that it is often the only possible avenue for people whose rights have been violated and it can serve a broader goal, at least if it's working properly of deterring future right. misconduct. Right. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the substance of these lawsuits. I mean, you, you, this book reads really easily because you give examples, um, which are, you know, horrible and, and tough to read sometimes, but, um, this idea that, that, you know, police can initiate, um, as they did at the Tyree Nichols case, um, and, and be totally hundred percent incorrect, right? We know that we see it on camera or we learn it through discovery and, and litigation, uh, but still, but they still avoid, they're still shielded from accountability. Uh, maybe talk to us about that in the, in the lens of the Andrew Scott case that I think you talk about in, in chapter four of the book, if you could, if you could. Yeah, and I should say, you know, each of the cases in this book uh, really haunt me and and stick with me. It's 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 not a it's not a fun read, but I'll I'll uh, invite you to try to find a book about police misconduct that uh, right. That try. Is. Agreed. Um, so Andrew Scott uh, was a twenty six year old white guy living in Leesburg, Florida, and he was working late one night um, at the pizzeria where he worked. Um, he came home at 1.30 in the morning or so, um, and his girlfriend, Miranda, was there. They sat in the living room, they played video games, they ate a little bit of food, and in the middle of the night, they heard loud pounding on their door. This was not the safest neighborhood. They, uh, you know, were a little concerned about, about hearing loud pounding in their door at the middle, in the middle of the night. And Andrew Scott went to his bedroom and got a gun from his nightstand, which is a gun he legally possessed, and walked to the living room and to the front door. He had the gun down by his side, and he opened the door, and seconds later, multiple shots rang out, and he was killed in front of his girlfriend, Miranda. Well, it turns out that a Lake County Sheriff's deputy named Richard Sylvester did that shooting, the way that Richard Sylvester got to Andrew Scott's house and came banging on his door is, is quite absurd uh, in my mind. Uh, Deputy Sylvester had seen a motorcycle speeding away from him, had gotten, had called it into the dispatcher, had been told that there was another motorcycle involved in an assault and battery. And he decided that those two motorcycles, the one that sped away from him and the one involved in the assault and battery were the same motorcycle. Then another deputy said, oh, I've, I see a motorcycle in the Blueberry Hill apartments. It's still warm to the touch. And in a city of thousands of people, they decided that that motorcycle was the same motorcycle involved in the assault and that had sped away from Deputy Sylvester. And then they decided that at 1.30 in the morning, they were gonna pound on people's doors to try to figure out who the motorcycle belonged to. And they pounded on uh, Scott's door because the light was on. And just to be to be clear, the, the person seen fleeing on the motorcycle was not involved in anything violent or felonious. Is that is that right? Or just fleeing the police officer is all we know, right? That is that is it. I mean, there had been, yeah. there had been a report of someone on a motorcycle who had been a suspect in an armed assault five miles away. 
But there was okay. no reason okay. to think that that was the same right. person motorcycle. or that those motorcycles right. were parked right. in front of the Blue Beer Hill apartments. Right. And so the Deputy Sylvester and a bunch of other officers went to the door of apartment 114, where Andrew Scott was, started pounding on the door. They could have, by the way, 1.30 in the morning, they, they could have called, found out who owned the motorcycle, checked its registration, waited until the morning. I mean, there are so many other things they could have done, but they right. started pounding right. on the door. Someone next door opened the door and said, what are you, what's going on? They explained and and the person in the next door apartment said that the owner of that motorcycle lived in an entirely different apartment. But at that same time, Andrew Scott opened his door, gun at the side, and he was shot. So this is the Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. This sounds pretty darn unreasonable on, on multiple levels. But the courts that heard this case dismissed it, finding that Andrew Scott's and Miranda Mock's uh, constitutional rights were not violated. They found there was no search because they didn't technically enter his home. And then they found- They shot the him amount, from outside. They shot him from outside. They never entered. They never announced themselves, but you don't have to knock and announce uh, if you don't go inside. And frankly, the way that Fourth Amendment law works, you actually don't have to knock and announce before you enter anyway, in most cases, because the Supreme Court has said, so long as you have a reasonable suspicion, you know, that there could be something dangerous inside, you don't have to knock and announce. But no, he didn't, he, he didn't, they didn't enter, so it's not a search. And the court says the deputy reasonably feared for his life because Andrew Scott had a gun, even though he legally possessed it. And and came to the door at 1.30 in the morning, not knowing who was there because they did not announce themselves. And these officers were completely shielded from liability for Andrew Scott's death. Is that right? They were. They were. They were. And this is another situation in which it's important to, to think about the, the alternatives. They also weren't disciplined and no criminal charges were brought against them. So a civil case was their only hope. And 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 think about now the Andrew Scott's parents lost their son. Miranda Mock had her own injuries and she lost her boyfriend. And they have to bear those costs right. for the rest of their lives. Right. That you, in, in the answer to your last question, you, you framed this, like someone has to bear these costs. Like if there is injustice, if there's harm, we talk a lot about harm on this podcast. And, you know, the whole point of this system, the whole point of a legal system is to redress harm. And in these instances, in so many of the examples you use in the book, like there just is not, there is no redress. No one bears it other than the families or the ones left behind or the people who are injured. If those are, those are not everyone is killed. Right. But um, so so when you watch a video like, more importantly, listen to a video uh, like the Tyree Nichols video, you, you will hear officers, and as a public defender, of course, uh, I read a million affidavits and I see uh, in, in plain English in front of me, sometimes not so plain English, phrases that recur, you know, that, that are repeated by police officers who, who know uh, this either because they've been taught it or because they've learned it through years, that there are certain things you can say and certain ways you behave 
during an arrest or an encounter that can potentially protect you in the future. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, I believe in the Tyree Nichols video, one of the first things we hear is he must be high, right? Or uh, it looked like a gun. I don't know if we heard that in the Tyree Nichols video necessarily, but those are some of the types of things I'm talking about. Do you, can you give examples of that or do you find that to be true? Absolutely. Uh, the, uh, the way in which the constitutional law is framed by the Supreme Court, uh, when you think about use of force, uh, the Supreme Court has basically said that uh, you look at the totality of the circumstances and whether force used was quote unquote, objectively reasonable. And the court talks about how you don't look at with the 2020 hindsight, you have to consider what an officer was experiencing at that moment. And in the Andrew Scott case, the deputy who shot Andrew Scott talked about fearing for his life uh, because he saw the gun in uh, Andrew Scott's hands. And that kind of language about fearing for your life, uh, statements that he was reaching for my gun. Um, that is a, a very common uh, phrase that is included in reports, uh, just justifying the use of force. Um, he was reaching for my gun. He was reaching for my taser. He had a knife. He looked like he was going to throw it at me. Um, these are all kinds of allegations that really set up the justification of fatal force um, during these interactions because the officer is reporting how they felt at the time that they feared for their life and offering um, a justification for that because he was reaching for my gun or I saw him reaching toward his pants, gathering, getting something from his pants um, which indicates it could be a good, could be a gun. A yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, well, it sounds reasonable to think that a police officer who is often in dangerous situations or unknown situations at best, um, might be given a little bit of a different, um, we might give a little different approach to that. Uh, and, but when we've, um, so some of the suggestions are that maybe we establish something closer to simple negligence, right? That, that you or I may be, be held to that standard if, uh, you know, in our cars or um, in other dangerous situations. There's a hysteria when you suggest that about police officers, um, but, it might, but it might make sense to some people. So tell us why, I mean, I think there's some evidence to this that you go over in the book, but like, um, tell us why we, we can... <laughs> do this. We can make officers more account accountable in a, in a way that's closer to the kind of negligence that you, standard that you and I are held to, and that we won't see frivolous lawsuits aplenty, which is always the big fear. Talk, talk a little bit about that. I've done a terrible job framing that question, but I think you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're getting at, and and, I, and I'll answer it in a couple of different ways, or, or, or talk about a couple of different proposals, and then it's the, it's the same hysteria that shows up again and again, sort of no matter what the proposal is. But there have been conversations and and some efforts to make the um, the use of force standard more restrictive, to limit force only in circumstances where it's necessary, or to create brighter line rules prohibiting shooting in cars or prohibiting chokeholds, prohibiting no-knock warrants. And there's been research for decades showing that police actually 
uh, can conform to bright line rules and that they reduce harms. Uh, when New York City banned shooting into moving cars, the number of killings by NYPD officers declined. Uh, this can Not be surprising. done. Not surprising. Um, you know, the other, another common push is is to get rid of qualified immunity doctrine, which even if someone's violated the Constitution, uh, is a protection so long as there's not a prior court decision um, that's held virtually identical conduct unconstitutional. And whenever any of these kinds of reforms are proposed, there's the same arguments made again and again, and they essentially go like this. Uh, police officers are going to be bankrupted for reasonable mistakes, then uh, no one will want to serve as a police officer, then chaos will reign. <laughs> and it's it's a version of that conversation. Um, and I've really spent my legal career examining those justifications and uh, find them not to be true. Um, it's interesting to be talking to you based in Memphis, uh, because some of these things are different than in Memphis. In, in most of the country, Officers are indemnified, which means that local governments pay settlements and judgments on officers' behalf, and they are not going to be paying anything out of their pockets. In Memphis, I've learned from speaking to some civil rights attorneys who practice there, the city of Memphis has a policy of not indemnifying their officers, meaning officers technically, theoretically, are on the hook. <laughs> and could have money from settlements and judgments taken out of their bank accounts. However, as a practical matter, Memphis officers rarely have to contribute to settlements and judgments against them because lawyers and their clients know that officers are either judgment-proof or don't have anywhere near the resources to satisfy these cases. And so typically, lawyers pursue claims against the city of Memphis directly. Um, Which sets and, a whole other standard, right? You get oh, a whole yeah. other standard of, of proof to meet at that point. It's right? very challenging and expensive. Very expensive it involves getting experts involved and massive amounts of uh, documents to be able to show a custom or a pattern across the entire city. Uh, it's very challenging to do, but it's really the only way to bring a civil rights case in Memphis challenging police department practices. Hmm. Um. I want to talk a little bit more about the Tyree Nichols case and just ask you simply to, to this point in the, in the process and, and as we're recording, um, several officers have been charged criminally. A few more have been dismissed from the force um, since that original five were, were um, uh, fired and charged. What has surprised you about all of that so far as a person who has looked into police misconduct for your entire career? Well, I certainly think that the action taken against the officers, both the decision to prosecute and the decision to fire, have been quick and they've been decisive. And mm -hmm. there's been a lot of discussion about how much credit to actually give the chief uh, for that swift action, given the fact that she created the Scorpion unit, given the fact that there has been so much other misconduct by that unit. Uh, given the new report that she's moving the other officers from the Scorpion unit to other elite units that may suffer the same problems. So I don't know that 
any of this swift action is evidence of truly progressive leadership uh, by the chief or the local government. I do think it says a lot about um, advocacy of people in Memphis around this issue. And I think it says a lot about public perception, something encouraging, I think, about public perception um, and intolerance of foot dragging around uh, more transparency and action. I mean, if you look back, um, Laquan McDonald was a man killed in Chicago um, by the Chicago Police Department. There was a video of, of that shooting. He was shot in the back. Uh, and there was video that was hidden for over a year uh, right, in a that long case, a long time. And it took a massive amount of work and advocacy to get anything moving in that case. And to see so quickly uh, video produced by the city and, and the swift action, I do, I do think it says something about the power of, of advocacy on the ground in Memphis and around the country right. on these issues. Yeah, even with the swiftness, I want you to maybe just briefly, instead of me saying it, because I'm a public defender and I, I'm very familiar with the process when, of, of charging someone and appearing in court. And even with the swiftness, uh, talk a little bit about the advantages that these five officers so far who have been uh, charged criminally, the advantages that they they still had, even though this is a remarkably fast prosecution. Um, it came weeks later. So what are the things that they were doing and being familiar with unions and how police departments work? What are the, what are the advantages that they had by being police officers charged with second degree murder instead of regular citizens? You know, I, I don't actually have a, I don't know so well what that, how that process has, has worked. I certainly, it's not something I've researched myself, but my understanding gotcha. from others um, generally about that process is that the, you know, the, the, there's often much more um, information provided to officers before they are questioned. Uh, the standards are, are, are higher. Um, and, uh, and the, the process, if there's a, if there's a grand jury, it's slightly, it's slightly different, but I don't think I'm, I'm not sure that I'm the right person to ask. That question. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll ask you one that you are qualified to answer then. And, and that is, what do you expect to see uh, in the Tyree Nichols case going forward from your experience studying the civil litigation side of things? I can, I can I, answer my own question maybe in the outro about the that, criminal side of things. That would be great. And, and in fact, I'd like to, I'd like to listen to it because I, I don't understand <laughs> that side as much. <clears throat> I expect that uh, there will be a lawsuit filed uh, by Tyree Nichols family and that it will settle very quickly for a substantial amount of money. I think that uh, all of the barriers and shields that I talk about in this book are really most powerful when used against people whose cases do not get public attention. Um, you know, when when Derek Chauvin uh, killed uh, George Floyd, the kept the case was settled quickly without any litigation around qualified immunity or whether his constitutional rights were violated. Uh, and there was no litigation around those issues because I think it would have horrified and angered people to see any defense right. of the officer's conduct. And I think that'll happen. And you too. think the same is true. Yeah, you think the same is true here. Absolutely. Um, so that's to accountability uh, and addressing the harm uh, the individuals caused. Do you have um, thoughts or, or, or 
on what could happen systemically, right? I mean, there's still reporting every day about these units and this department and, and even the people involved on the, the night of January 7th. But um, what are the options for this community uh, and for policing writ large um, out of this incident? Well, I think that this incident and so many others should raise really fundamental questions for us about what we authorize police to do. And I think that these elite units have gotten a tremendous amount of attention. I think that we should, we, history has shown us that every time there is an elite unit gathered to deal with some sort of crime hotspot um, or rise in crime, abuses follow. And periodically those abuses lead elite units to be dis, disbanded and then they're, they begin again. We should be learning from our past here and, and not having these units. We also need to think about uh, other things that we authorize police to do. Why are police involved in low-level traffic uh, enforcement? I mean, Philadelphia is implemented a policy now that would stop low-level traffic enforcement by law enforcement, which is one of the key ways in which police use of force events occur. We also can think about uh, how to have police interact with um, people who are suffering mental health crises. Uh, I just read today that New Jersey is, is um, working on a, a plan that would involve um, its uh, officers working with mental health specialists to, to serve as first responders in these incidents to try to reduce the frequency with which officers uh, are using force against people who are in those mental health crises. Now, I think that we need to think about limiting police footprints, and then we also need to make sure that accountability uh, measures work better than they do. We've heard a lot uh, about at Tyree Nichols' funeral, for example, about the uh, the George Floyd Act that uh, is in Congress right now. Can you talk a little bit about that and the kinds of things that it might do? I know, you know, there are tens of thousands, I believe, police departments in this country. So it's it's um, a little difficult for me to comprehend how something that Congress can do uh, could impact that in any significant way. But but will it? Yeah. So it, you're absolutely right. Uh, there are somewhere around 17,000, 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the country, and they're incredibly uh, localized in terms of their structure of control. And so then it, it does uh, raise some questions about whether and how at a federal level, um, there can be widespread changes that will make a difference. Um, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which was an, it was passed by the House in the summer of 2020 and then negotiated uh, around until it failed more than a year later, does a couple of different things that um, Congress really is well positioned to do. Uh, one is ending qualified immunity doctrine. Uh, it's, a, it's a defense that the Supreme Court created and Congress could, and to my view, should do away with. Uh, the um, act also creates some bright line rules prohibiting chokeholds and no-knock warrants in drug raids, it can only prohibit those things directly for federal agents. But what it what it does is tie uh, federal money to local governments um, prohibiting those uh, kinds of uh, behavior. So, so it's using the sort of federal purse strings to try to force them. There's a couple Much other like things. The old, 
Yeah, go ahead. Much like the old example of the speed limits, right? If you don't right. put a speed limit on your highways, you don't get federal highway dollars. It's the same thing. You don't get federal law enforcement money if you don't ban chokeholds or exactly. Like that. And I don't know how much you know. I would if it if it were to pass, <laughs> it would be a bit of an experiment to see um, how uh, whether that financial carrot or stick changed behavior and, and also the extent to which the federal government really enforced those rules. Um, so that's one part. They also, there's a lot around data collection. Um, and similarly, federal funds are tied to states collecting data about police killings, police uses of force, um, sort of demographics of the victims of uh, police stops and frisks and, and force. Um, again, there's been, you know, decades of efforts by the federal government to collect this kind of data from police departments that have been unsuccessful, but maybe if these federal funds are tied to it, it could work. Uh, and then I guess the last sort of bucket of, of things uh, that are in the bill as it currently stands are around giving the Department of Justice greater power to subpoena records from departments that it's investigating and encouraging state attorneys general uh, to do their own investigations, basically to sort of supplement the Department of Justice's investigation. A definite step in the right direction. And, you know, it, the, the, the influence of, uh, of the federal government can't be, uh, you know, overstated. So, um, man, I, f I feel like we <laughs> could do an episode on each chapter of your book, and, and then that may be a good idea. I'm not, not telling you how to live your life, but, like, uh, I'd listen to it. I'd listen to it uh, because... I have not done the book justice in, in a few minutes uh, talking with you, and I want to give you a chance uh, with the last question to, to sort of talk about A Better Way, which is, is the title of one of the final chapters in, in the book. And, and you're not just a critic, right, which is what I like about the book, is that at the end you say, and here's how we could make it better. So just if, if you can, I know I'm asking you to summarize your entire book in a chapter, like in a, in a few minutes, but what it, what is that better way? What could it look like? And, and I, I presume the it being civil litigation in instances of police misconduct. What, what are the, some of the changes that we could make that would make it more effective at addressing the harm that so often is done at the hands of law enforcement? Yeah, and I, and I do, I am focused on, you know, accountability after uh, officers have violated the law. I, I do think a better way involves reconsidering the footprint uh, and the power of policing in some of the ways I talked about. Um, reducing, you know, reliance on police uh, to 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 uh, respond to people having mental health crises and and traffic uh, violations and the like. Um, but we're always going to have some form of public safety apparatus, I think, and they're always going to have uh, instances where they abuse their power. And so my focus here is on how to make that system of accountability work better. And yes, I mean, I think that getting rid of some of the legal rules that I talk about in the book, including the standards for holding local governments responsible and, and the standards for qualified immunity, um, I think are, are important to get rid of. Um, I also think that we need to uh, figure out better ways to make sure that local uh, police departments and police officers are experiencing the consequences of these cases. Um, I talk about a statute in Colorado that was passed in Colorado in June of 2020 that requires officers, if they've been found to have acted in bad faith by their 
employer, they can be required to contribute $25,000 or 5% of a settlement or judgment, whichever is less. If they don't have the money, then the city will pick up the tab, but it, it creates at least some possible financial sanction for officers who've acted in bad faith. I also think local governments need to do a much better job of gathering and analyzing information from these lawsuits. If you were sued, uh, if your employer was sued, you would expect that you or your employer would take some time to figure out what happened in these cases and figure out how to prevent it from happening again. That happens all too rarely in, in, in uh, police departments, and I think it should happen more. Um, this, is, this is work that uh, I think is really going to happen if it happens at the local level. It's city councils who can tie police department budgets to police departments doing a better job of analyzing the claims that are brought against them and figuring out how to prevent them from happening again. So this is work that really can be done um, by our local communities. And, and that's why I say at the end, I think there is something for us all to do, um, to petition our city councils, to require our police departments to take better account of what happens in these cases, uh, to serve on juries. And when serving on the jury, you know, to, to um, play your, your role in assessing um, uh, who is at fault. For lawyers out there uh, agreeing to take some of these cases, uh, spending some of their time litigating civil rights cases. Uh, I think that lawyers are a huge part of the accountability uh, uh, needs, and we, we need lawyers to bring these cases. So I think that there's a lot that people at every level can do. And, and there's almost, <laughs> there's, you know, there's sort of nowhere to go but up um, in our current system. So it, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's sadly. a lot to do, but that also means there's a lot of opportunity. Thank you, Professor Schwartz. The book is called Shielded. Do you have a release date? It is going to be released on Valentine's Day. So I encourage all, right. all of the listeners to, you know, find their sweetie, uh, get some roses and uh, read a book about police misconduct and accountability. The most romantic uh, Valentine's you can imagine. Uh, well, this will probably not come out until after Valentine's, so go get a copy of Shielded. Um, it is It could not be more relevant and timely to the experiences we've been having here in Memphis uh, and unfortunately across America. Uh, so thank you, Professor Schwartz, for spending a little bit of time breaking it down for us. We really, really appreciate it. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. That was my interview with Professor Joanna Schwartz from the UCLA School of Law. Her new book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, is available now. I highly encourage you get a copy and check it out. I suggest that you go to Burke's Books if you live in Memphis. Special thanks to Dylan Sandifer for helping produce this episode and to Ryan Azada for recording, editing, and publishing it. Jeff Hewlett wrote and performed She Got Gone, the original theme music for the permanent record. Jeff plays lots of live music, Check him out this spring. You won't be disappointed. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work and find previous episodes of this podcast at our brand new website, justcity.org. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at justcity901 for more updates. Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record somewhere. Give us a rating. Suggest us to your friends. It really helps us build an audience. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.